to open your Bibles tonight, or today, I should say. It's today. We'll get tonight later. Open your Bibles today to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And today we come back to uh, the regular sequence of our preaching through 1 Corinthians. Uh, Last week we skipped over several chapters in order that we might get to chapter 15. And of course we went there because Paul gave us that great that great passage on the resurrection of of Christ from the dead. We studied about that last week, but now we need to come back to our regular study. We're coming back to this 10th chapter, and we're going to deal today with examples of how people have fallen in their Christian lives. And we have warnings here that are given in the Scripture that we are not, or we ought to be very careful at least, not to lose our balance and to fall into temptation. Now, the first thing that we have to do to sort of get the idea of where we're going with today's message is we have to go back four weeks now to the beginning of March and where we ended up in chapter 9. Now, we had that break because we had the the trip where I went to Israel for a couple of weeks, and, and then we had Easter last week. So it's four weeks now since we last talked about chapter 9. So we've got to go back there, and we need to connect our thoughts with that chapter. And in chapter 9, in the end, uh, Paul was telling us there that he was willing to do whatever it takes to win people to Jesus Christ. The most important thing that Paul had in his life was this desire that he wanted to win people to the Lord. And so he would do whatever it takes to do that. And if it meant that he had to restrict uh, some of his Christian liberties in order that he might lead people to Jesus, that's what he was willing to do. And Paul made a grand statement in verse number 22 of chapter 9 where he says, I am made all things to all men that by all means... I might save some. And so that shows us that Paul was concerned about that issue. There are people dying without Christ, and he wanted to win them to the Lord. And then if you look at the last verse in chapter 9, verse number 27, here Paul says, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And so Paul was very concerned that he examined every motive, every thought, every feeling, and he kept all of those things in line, lest he should commit some sin in which he would be no longer useful in God's service. And this is the warning that he gives us. He says there are some things that you can do in your Christian life, and they might, in fact, disqualify you from your service to the Lord. Now, of course, he doesn't mean that you could lose your salvation. That's impossible. The Bible says you can't lose your salvation. But what he's talking about is a Christian who needs to be very concerned about every area of his life because sometimes you can think that you're standing for Christ when, in fact, you've lost your balance and you've fallen out of usefulness in the Lord's service. So in this chapter, Paul gives us warnings And he's concerned with that in this first part. Now, I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word today. We're going to read the text verses. I do hope you have your Bible with you because we're going to be studying these verses today. And we're going to think about the subject, be careful not to lose your balance. If you would please look at verse number 1 of chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. 
What he's talking about there is the children of Israel. They were in bondage in Egypt. God led them out, and they went through the Red Sea. That's the sea that he's talking about. Verse number 2, And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. If you have a pencil, you might want to underline that verse right there, that phrase, because that is the grandest understatement in all of the Bible. With many of them, God was not well pleased. When in fact, out of two and a half million people, there were only two people that God was pleased with, Joshua and Caleb. For they were overthrown. The people were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, what does all that mean to us? Well, verse number 6. Now, these things were our example to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. As we come to verse number 11, here is the key verse that talks about why we actually need to read the Old Testament. Verse 11, Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples or examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Our main text verse, number 12, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you at this time. We ask you, Lord, to bless the reading of your word. Uh, Open up your word to us today, Lord, so we may understand these examples that the Apostle Paul gives And Lord, as we go through the message, may people very clearly understand we have to be careful about how we live our Christian lives that we might not fall into temptation and into sin. Bless the message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you want to distill all of these verses that we've just read down into one central theme, it would be this. You are to take all of the mistakes and all of the failures that you've made in your Christian life, and every one of those mistakes and every one of those failures is to be used in preparation to resist future temptations. You have some built-in warnings in your life of what happens to you when you disobey God, when you fall into temptation and you fall under the prey or under the, 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 uh, the leadership of Satan instead of the Holy Spirit, And you begin to live your life in a way that's not pleasing to God. Now, if we go back here to uh, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, in the very first part of the book, we find the crux of the problem in the Corinthian church. These are people that were dependent upon their worldly wisdom. They thought that they were spiritual people, and they believed that they could play around with sin, that they could enter into all these temptations, that they could actually handle temptation, when in reality, they were all headed for a massive fall. And so to turn this church around, Paul speaks a very 
uh, important issues. And here he talks about two important topics. He speaks to them about what happened in the past, and then he goes on and he gives them a promise that they can count on. Now, today I'm going to begin a two-part message. We're, We're going to talk about these scriptures for two weeks, and this week we're going to talk about the first of those two topics as it relates to the passage that we've just read. We're going to talk about how Paul deals with all of these examples of the past and how they affect the way that we're supposed to live for Christ today. And so Paul begins in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians with this subject. He wants them to consider the past. Paul wants them to consider the past that they find in these Old Testament examples. Now, in the five years that I've been pastor of Berean Baptist, one of the things that I've tried to do, I've tried to balance the teaching and the preaching ministry with messages that come from both the Old and the New Testaments. Now, sometimes I think that people have a totally wrong idea about the Old Testament. And that's because we put the word old in front of it, and somehow we've got the idea that the Old Testament is no good for us anymore, that that's the old Scripture. It doesn't apply any longer. We don't need that anymore. And so what we have now is a superior part of the Bible. We have the New Testament, and that's what we're supposed to preach from. Well, I'm afraid that Jesus and the apostles would not recognize those designations that we've given. When Jesus preached uh, from the Bible, he just simply preached the Scriptures. There wasn't any Old Testament. There wasn't any New Testament to be worried about. All of it was Scripture. And so Jesus taught from the Scriptures, and he taught from what we called the Old Testament. Paul and the apostles, they'd use uh, their preaching from Old Testament Scripture. They considered what was written in the Old Testament as something we need to very closely pay attention to. And so Paul has no problem at all going back here to the Old Testament to show these people, to show the Corinthians, this is relevant for your time. And as we read it today, it is relevant for every Christian in this room. The Old Testament is not passe for us. So Paul, in speaking to the Corinthians, he goes back to the Old Testament, and here he says, these things, these things are examples for us. These things are written for us to teach us what we are to look out for, and we are not supposed to fall into the same temptations that those people fell into. You know, we don't think a person is too smart if he walks down the highway or or down the street or down the road and falls into a hole gets out of the hole and turns right back around and walks into the same hole again. That's not very smart. And that's what Paul is saying. You've got the warnings, you've got the examples. Don't fall into the same traps that they fell into. Well, what does Paul talk about when he talks about the past? Well, what he's doing here, first of all, is that he's giving us some pictures of salvation. He shows us what happened to the children of Israel in the past, that is a picture of the salvation that each of us has right now in the present. And so he begins in verse number 1, and he says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What Paul is talking about is what happened to Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when they came out of Egypt, when they came out of bondage, when they came out of slavery there, that is a picture of what happens when a person receives Christ as his Savior. Now, the first picture he gives us here in pictures of salvation, the first one is our conversion from sin. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, that was a picture of us coming out of our lost condition. In Egypt, Israel was enslaved. 
Pharaoh was a cruel taskmaster over the people. And it was impossible for, uh, for these people to escape that slavery that they were under. There was tyranny and there was an awfulness to that slavery. And the Bible teaches us that a person without Jesus Christ, he is enslaved to sin. The Scripture says that we are also under a cruel taskmaster. We are under the bondage of slavery. And what Satan has done to us, he has blinded our eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we may not see the gospel and believe in Christ. Now, just as Israel, as it was impossible for them to come out of slavery unless God should deliver them from that, it is just as impossible for a person to come out from under the bondage and the blindness of sin unless Jesus should come, and unless the Holy Spirit should come and open his eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what God does. He saves us out of bondage. And so when we receive Christ as our Savior, we are delivered from the clutches of Satan and we're brought out from under bondage to sin. Now he goes on here and he gives us another picture of salvation. The second one is our baptism for obedience. Paul says... All our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, do you remember how Israel went through the Red Sea? Do you remember the story? Everyone's familiar with that. If you watch the Ten Commandments on television, you know know about it. That was on television again for the 900th time, I suppose, last week. You know my favorite part of the Ten Commandments? It's when Moses is standing up there over the Red Sea And he holds out his arms and he holds out his staff and the waters part. And there's this dry land all the way through that sea. And the children of Israel are obedient and they walk down into that dry path. And on either side of them, there's these walls of water that are standing up. And Israel passes through the Red Sea and they come out on the other side. Now that's actually like a picture of our baptism. That's what happens when we get baptized, when we go through the waters of baptism. We go through the waters, we are obedient to the Lord's command, and we come out on the other side. Now, understand this, that baptism is actually what you can call the gospel in a nutshell. Because what, the, what baptism does, it pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It pictures what Jesus did to obtain eternal salvation for us. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he went into that tomb, and then he arose from the grave. Now, later on, when we get to chapter 15, uh, Paul tells us that that is the essence of the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. And then he goes on to tell about how we're saved by that gospel. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For I delivered unto you, uh, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that's exactly what baptism pictures. Now, in verse number 2, Paul says that all of Israel was baptized unto Moses. What does that mean? Does that mean that Moses had a big baptismal ceremony right there at the Red Sea and he took all the children of Israel and he baptized them in the Red Sea? That's not what it means. It's not baptism like we think of because there was no baptism. There was no Christian baptism at the time of Moses. But what he means here is that all of these people were identified with the leadership of Moses. And that's what he means when he says they're baptized in the cloud and in the sea. 
So Moses was their leader, and they were identified with Moses as the leader. Now that brings me to the third picture of salvation, because that is our identification with Christ. And that's what our baptism also pictures. It pictures that we have been identified with Christ. Galatians says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That means that we're identified with him. Now understand this very clearly. I know most of you know it today. Baptism does not save you. Going into those waters over there is not going to save anybody. But baptism is a picture of what does save us. And what did we say that was? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what saves us. And so when you as a Christian, when you go into the waters of baptism, you are identifying with Christ. And you are saying, I want everybody to know that I am a believer in Jesus. I have identified with him. Jesus Christ is my Savior. I want you to know that. And so I'll go through the waters of baptism. Now, I've told you many times before that baptism is your public confession of Christ. Some people think that coming up this aisle, kneeling down at these steps and turning around and telling everybody, well, I'm saved today, that that's your public confession of Christ. Do you know the Bible nowhere says that that is how you identify with the Lord? The way that you identify with Christ is you get saved and then you go through the waters of baptism. You get baptized and that identifies you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying... Just as Israel was identified with Moses, he was their deliverer from Egypt. He's the leader to take them all the way into the promised land. So when you are baptized, you are saying that Jesus Christ is my leader. I am identifying with him, and Jesus is going to take me all the way into heaven. But now Paul has more pictures of salvation because next he gives us a picture of our guidance by the Holy Spirit. Now, in in both verses 1 and 2, he talks about the cloud. When Israel uh, went out of Egypt, God put a cloud in front of them, and that led them in the way that they should go. At night, that cloud became a pillar of fire, so they would be able to see where to go in the darkness. Now, that cloud is actually representative of the presence of God. When the cloud moved, Israel moved. When the cloud stopped, Israel stopped. Now, an interesting thing about this is that when Israel went through the Red Sea, the cloud that was leading them moved from the front of the people to the rear of the people. On one side of the cloud, it was light for the children of Israel as they went through the Red Sea. But on the other side of the cloud, it was complete blackness. It was darkness to the Egyptians, and they couldn't see their way to go through the sea. They couldn't follow Israel. Well, that cloud is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So, Paul is telling us, when you receive Christ as your Savior, you are given the Holy Spirit to guide you. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life so that you're never alone. Now, remember the subject here is be careful not to lose your balance. You don't want to fall. And so, as a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit who's watching you and guiding you. And whenever you come to a temptation, when there's something that's put in your way, and you say, I wonder if I ought to do that, Or should I not do that? You have the Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of you, and he helps you to resist that temptation. In the book of Romans, it tells us that the Holy Spirit helps our infirmities. And so the Holy Spirit is always there for a Christian. Well, we have one more picture of salvation that Paul gives from the past. And number five is our nourishment for strength. Verse number three, And did all eat 
the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, in the wilderness, God gave Israel food. What you had were two and a half million people approximately that went through the wilderness area, and there was no food there. How are you going to feed two and a half million people? So God saw the situation, and God said, I'm going to take care of this. And so God sent the people manna to eat. He sent them quail to eat. One morning, the people of Israel, they got up, they looked outside their tent doors, and all over the ground there was this white stuff. They looked out there and they said, what is it? They had no idea what it was or where it came from. What is it? That's what manna actually means. The word manna means, what is it? And so for 40 years, the name stuck. Manna, what is it? Every day they got up and said, let's go get some. What is it? They didn't know what it was. And as we've talked about it before, of course, the children of Israel, they took that manna, and you can imagine eating it for 40 years. They had to prepare it in every conceivable way. So they made manna cakes. They made manna, 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 manna uh, casserole. And, and remember that manna, manna bread? And they, they made that too. And so that's what God gave them. He gave them this manna to eat. Well, what does that symbolize? It symbolizes Jesus, who is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life who came down from heaven. Just like God sent manna down from heaven, God sent Jesus to us to be our bread of life. John, uh, Jesus said in John 6, verse 48, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness. We just talked about that. They ate manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. This is the bread Talking about himself, Jesus says, This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am that living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. So manna was their nourishment. Manna was the physical nourishment for the children of Israel. And Jesus Christ himself is our spiritual nourishment. We draw our strength from him. We draw our life from him. But also, in the wilderness, there was no water. Now, there's two and a half million people again. They're in a desert area, and there's no water to drink. And so God also gave them water. God said to Moses, Moses, there's a rock over there. I want you to take your rod. I want you to strike that rock. And when Moses did, there was water that came out of the rock. Now, here's where we really see the value of the New Testament as it begins to explain to us pictures in the Old Testament. What does that mean? Well, very clearly here, Paul tells us that that rock represents Christ. In verse number 4, he said, And that rock was Christ. Jesus Christ is spiritual water. He's the water of life. You remember he told the woman at the well, he said, If you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. Now, isn't that a great picture? Moses struck that rock, and what it was, it was a picture of Jesus Christ who was smitten on the cross of Calvary. Jesus was crucified on the cross for our sins in order that we might have life. And so Jesus is our spiritual nourishment. And friends, Jesus is the only way that a person will ever have spiritual life. So do you see here all the wonderful pictures that Paul presents in, in just a few verses? He, he talks about deliverance from Egypt. That's a picture of, of our conversion. He speaks about crossing the Red Sea. That picture 
our baptism. He talks about Moses as the deliverer of, of Israel from Egypt, and Jesus Christ is our deliverer from the bondage of sin. He speaks about the cloud. That represents the Holy Spirit who guides us. Then he talks about the food and the drink, and that's our spiritual nourishment that we receive from Jesus Christ in order that we might have spiritual life. So there we have some wonderful pictures. But the passage doesn't end with verse number 4. We have to go on to verse number 5. And in verse number 5, we find the application of why Paul begins to, or has given us those examples. Because next we find, the next thing that Paul talks about is the problem of sin. After all of this, after this great deliverance, there's a problem of sin. What should Israel have been doing? Oh, they should have been out there shouting as high as the heavens that God had delivered them. They should be uh, just telling everybody what God did for them. But instead of standing, Israel entered into sin. They lost their balance and they fell. Verse number 5 says, But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, there's that great understatement of the Scriptures. With many of them, God was not well pleased. Out of two and a half million people, there were only two, Joshua and Caleb, that, Caleb, that were over the age of 20 years old when they left Egypt that actually made it all the way into the promised land. Even Moses and Aaron did not make it all the way into the promised land. So the Scripture says they were overthrown. Now understand what that word means because what it actually means, I mean, if you, if you look this up, if you, if you test it out here, you find out that the word overthrown here literally means this. Their carcasses, their bodies were strewn all the way through the wilderness. From Egypt to the promised land for 40 years, the carcasses of the children of Israel were scattered across those dying carcasses scattered across all through the wilderness. Now, Paul says in verse number 6 that what happened to them is an example. Don't let it happen to you. Verse 6, now these things are our, were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, as we go on here in the next part of the message, Paul shows us, in these verses, some specific sins that Israel committed. And it just so happens that the Corinthians were involved in those very same sins. And so he talks about these sins that Israel entered into. And he says, this is what happened to them. You, you are doing the same kinds of things. You're entering into the same kind of sin. And you may think that you're standing as a Christian, but you've lost your balance. If you don't catch yourself, you're going to fall. So what is it that Israel did? Well, he mentioned four specific sins. The first sin he talks about here is the sin of idolatry. Look in verse number 7. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It only took a few days of walking through the wilderness before Israel got mixed up with idolatry. Israel came to Mount Sinai. And God called Moses to come up on that mountain. And there on Mount Sinai, God spent time with Moses. And God gave him all of the commands for the worship of Israel. Now Moses was up there for a long time. And the people began to get very anxious waiting for Moses to get back. They thought that Moses just simply spent too much time with God. 
And so they said, that's, that's too long. So they said, enough of this. So they went to Aaron. And they said to Aaron, Aaron, what we want you to do, we want you to make us a God that we can see. We want you to make us a God that we can worship, just like all the other nations have their God. We want you to make us a God. And so what they did, they took off their, their golden earrings, they took off their bracelets, and what Aaron did, he took all those and he melted those down and he made a golden calf. Now, it just so happens that this golden calf was exactly the same kind of an idol that they were worshiping in Egypt. Isn't that an amazing thing? Here they had just been delivered from Egypt. God had just defeated all the false gods of Egypt. And now Israel says, make us a god like the Egyptians. Doesn't make much sense, does it? The all-powerful god, and yet they say, make us a golden calf that we can worship. Those gods had just been overthrown. Now, you know the interesting part about this is that when Aaron made that golden calf, he began to offer sacrifices to this calf just like they would offer to Jehovah God. And so Aaron was saying, it really doesn't matter that we have an idol to worship. That doesn't matter. I mean, we know that this idol's not real. We're not really worshiping that. We're really worshiping Jehovah God. We just kind of pictured it here. We've got an idol that we like to worship. Did you know that the Roman Catholic Church still uses that very same argument today and the same excuse. They worship hundreds of idols, and they say, well, it's okay, because we understand that the idol is not the real thing. We just, we just have that idol, and, and, we, and we worship, but it's not the real thing. We understand that. Well, when the Roman Catholic Church says that they're as old as the hills or they have antiquity, they're right about this. They go all the way back to the children of Israel worshiping around a golden calf. And it's just as much wrong today as it was then. It's an abomination to God because God says we're not supposed to do it. You're not to have an idol. So Moses came down from the mountain and he saw all of these people worshiping this calf and he became very angry. So he took the Ten Commandments. And these Ten Commandments had been written on, on tablets or tables of stone. And Moses threw those Ten Commandments, and he broke them. And I suppose he's the only person that ever broke all the Ten Commandments at one time. But he threw all the commandments down, and he broke them. Then he went to Aaron, and he said, Aaron, what do you think that you're doing? And Aaron said, I don't know. Well, he just took off their, their bracelets and their earrings, and we threw them in the fire, and out jumped a golden calf. And that was not an acceptable answer. And so on that day, there were 3,000 people in Israel that died. And so began the carnage in the wilderness. There's the first time that people died because they disobeyed God. And that began the carnage in the wilderness. Now, what about these Corinthians? Well, idolatry, that was sin number one in the city of Corinth. The city was filled with idolatry. And these Christian people at Corinth who were supposed to be saved out of idolatry, they began to still mix it up with these idols. And they thought that it was all right. They said, we can handle that temptation. We can still have our idols. We can still worship Jehovah God. And they thought that they could flirt with that sin. But you can't mix your faith with idols. You can't do that because when you do, you'll end up being of no use in the Lord's service. Now you say, well, how does that apply to me? I don't worship idols. Well, maybe you don't worship an idol. Maybe you don't have one that's carved out of, out of wood and out of stone. Maybe you wouldn't even think of bowing down to a statue of Mary and worshiping a statue of Mary. You'd never do that. 
but you do have other idols in your life. And you know what I mean? Whenever you put anything in front of your service to God, when there is anything that takes God's place, that becomes an idol to you. It can be your job, and many people have made their jobs getting ahead, being number one, making money, that becomes their idol. For some people, it's the hobbies that they have or their recreation. They can't come to church because they've got to recreate. They've got to be here. They've got to be there. They've got to do this. They've got to do that. And so they put that in front of God, and that becomes their idol. Sometimes it's a person's family. My family is actually more important than God. Now, your family ought to be very important to you. We need good, strong families. But there is nothing that can take the place of God. And whenever you put something in front of him, you've made that thing your idol. And Paul says, you better be careful. This is what they did. They had an idol, and they fell because of it. Now, the second thing that he brings up here, the second sin, is the sin of sexual immorality. Now, it seems like we almost can't get away from this subject. Paul keeps bringing it up and dealing with the Corinthians. We keep going over and over it again. And that ought to tell us that this is a very serious problem. We see sexual immorality first in verse number 7, where he says the people rose up to play. These people that were worshiping the golden calf, they rose up to play. Now, the connotation of that is that while they were dancing around the golden calf, that they began to commit lewd sexual acts. And in fact, that's exactly what they did. In Exodus, where this story is told, the Bible says that Moses came down from the mountain and he saw that all of the people were naked. Now, there's something you need to understand about the word naked in the Old Testament. The word naked does not always mean that they stripped off all of their clothes. Now, in this case, I think they did. But in the Old Testament, naked does not always mean all of your clothes. It can mean partly clothed. It can also mean scantily clothed. Now, I think that if Moses were standing up here today preaching from this pulpit, he would see some people in church that Moses would say, I saw that the people were naked. They didn't have enough clothes on to cover them up. Here's something you need to be aware of, Christian. You ought to put your clothes on, and you ought to keep your clothes on, because that is wrong. It's wrong to expose your body to someone else. And people come to church that way. And Moses would say, there are people in church that are naked for crying out loud. We don't need to see what you have. Cover yourself up. So that's a part of the sin here, sexual immorality. But that's not the only place we read about it. Verse number 8 says, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and 20,000. Now, the sin of fornication here refers back again to the Old Testament when Israel was going through the wilderness and they started messing around with women from Moab. Now, remember, God's Word says that Israel is to be a separated people. They're not to mix and mingle with Canaanites or the people of the world. They're not to worship their gods, but that's what they did. In Numbers chapter 25, the Scripture says, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people under the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. The result of that immorality was that 23,000 Israelites were killed in one day. Later, a 1,000 more died. So there were a total of 24,000 people who died because of this sin. Well, here we go again. What was a major sin that we find in Corinth? 
the sin of sexual immorality. There was a person in the church at Corinth, do you remember, that was right then living in fornication, living in an illicit relationship with his mother, his stepmother, I should say, with his stepmother. And Paul says, you can't do that. In Corinth, these people worshipped at the temple of Aphrodite. They had male and female prostitutes that were there. And what happened here in Corinth is people that were saved, the people of God, they said, it's all right. We, we can do this because sex is a, is a physical thing. Worshiping God, that's a spiritual thing, but sex is a physical thing. So it really doesn't matter. And they acted as if, as if the physical and the spiritual are mutually exclusive principles. Paul says, not on your life, because when God saves you, he takes care of the whole man. The whole person is taken care of. And so how you live your life and what you do physically, it will affect you spiritually. And so he brings up this sin of sexual immorality. And he says, if you get involved with this, it will ruin you. You'll get out of balance and you'll fall. And so he says, take heed lest ye fall. The third sin that he brings up is testing the Lord. We find it in verse number 9. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. To test the Lord means that when you try to get as close to the world as you can live and you still try to keep one foot in the world and one foot in God's good graces. To test the Lord means that you will try to get as close to that line as you can get. You'll go as far as you can until God finally decides he's going to crack the whip on you and bring you back. And so you tempt the Lord. Now, the Old Testament example here comes from Numbers chapter 21. Here's Israel. They've received all these good things at the hand of God. God took care of them. God gave them the manna to eat. He gave them the water to drink. But the people began to complain. And they said, we want more than this. God, what you're giving us does not satisfy us. It's not sufficient. We'd rather go back to Egypt because we remember all the things that we had there. We remember the leeks and the vegetables and all the things that we ate in Egypt. Back in Numbers 11, they said, we remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. I don't understand that whole garlic thing. Now, that would have been enough to keep me out of Egypt forever. But, but they said, we remember all those things. We'd rather be in Egypt. Take us back to Egypt. Take us back to bondage. It's better there. And you know there are a lot of Christians that are saying the same thing today. My old lifestyle, that was better, so I think I'll just go back and live it. I'll just go back to what I used to do. And so Christians began to live like the devil. Well, God remembered it all. He remembered what Israel did. They tested him one too many times. And you know what God did in this story? God sent snakes to take care of them. He sent these snakes, and the bite of the snake, it was a fiery serpent. It was a burning, painful bite when that snake bit them. So here we have more people die and there's more carnage in the wilderness, more bodies are left behind, and they never make it to the promised land. Paul says this is a warning. Don't do what they did. Don't think that you can flirt with sin because sin will reach out and bite you just like those snakes bit them. Now, number four, the fourth sin that he talks about here is grumbling. Verse number 10. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, this one comes from Numbers chapter 15, or, or 16, rather. 
And this is when the people uh, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. It's after God had given a display of divine justice because the people thought that Moses and Aaron, they had just set themselves up as, as leaders of the people. God hadn't chosen them. So they said, God hasn't chosen you, Moses. He hasn't chosen you, Aaron. We think that we ought to be leaders. Well, God set up a test, and Moses was a part, of course, setting up this test to find out who are the real leaders in Israel. And if you remember the story, what God did was he opened up the earth, and it swallowed all of those people who said, we ought to be the leaders, and the ones that were left standing were Moses and Aaron. So God showed them who the leaders were. But you know, the people didn't get it. Instead, they complained about that too, and they said, Moses, you and Aaron, you are the reason this happened. It's all your fault. Well, that's all that God could stand. And so what God did, he killed 14,700 more people. And so there's more death in the wilderness. Now, here's the interesting thing when we talk about grumbling. Notice where Paul puts the sin of grumbling. You may not think that it's such a bad thing, but where does he put it? It's right in the mix with idolatry and sexual immorality. Now, when you grumble against God, you're saying God's sovereign will for my life is not right. I don't like where God has put me. I don't like what God is doing with me. I don't think that God is fair. And when you start to act like that and you begin to grumble, you had better watch out because you are going to be disqualified from God's service. Now, I want to finish part number one of the message with this thought. Let's think for just a moment. Who are these people that we're talking about in the wilderness? Who are those people? Those who fell were God's people. The ones that were left in the wilderness and died, they're God's people. Now, some of them, I'm sure they were long for the ride. They weren't true believers. But among this company of, the, of these people, there are believers in Jehovah God. And they fell because they got away from God. And so their bodies were left in the wilderness. As I said, bodies are strewn all the way from Egypt to Canaan. So Paul is telling the people at Corinth, be careful, this can happen to you. This is a warning for you. Now, verse number 10, all these things happen to them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the world, ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Be careful, Christian. You may think that everything's fine in your life. You may think it's all right. It doesn't matter. I can dabble in this little sin. It's not going to affect me. There aren't going to be any consequences. I can handle all the temptation. You'd better be careful. Be careful you don't lose your balance. You may think that you're standing on solid ground when in fact you are ready for a headlong fall. And when you fall, it's not going to be pleasant. God is not pleased when we fall into temptation and into sin. And so Paul's warning for us here is that we are to follow the Spirit. We're to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, follow the leadership of the Spirit, so that we don't fall into temptation and into sin. Don't let it happen to you. Listen to the warnings. We have the Old Testament, and we read the Old Testament because God has given us a warning not to fall into sin. Would you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you in the end of this message today, help us to be very much aware that we have to be so careful about sin in our lives. There are many temptations that the world places in the way today. 
Satan is always trying to get us to follow the next greatest, latest, latest, greatest thing. It all looks good to us. We want to go after it. But when we do, we fall, and we are in danger of being disqualified from your service. There are sins that we can enter into, and Lord, help us not to enter into them where we will be castaways, no longer useful in the service of the great God and King. Lord, bless in this invitation today. Speak to some heart. If there's someone here who's not saved, they don't know you as Savior, sin leads people into hell, and the sin problem must be taken care of. And Jesus Christ died to save us from our sins. Speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.